Hello and welcome to The Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda K. Lindenbaum, Zichrona Levracha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture that are central to the modern Orthodox community. I'm Shmuel Hain, co-director of Machon Siach and the host of the Grand Conversation podcast, which will feature the faculty fellows of Machon Siach discussing their work. Our producer is the immortal Rabbi Avi Bloom, director of technology at SAR High School and official Zoom guru. For today's long-awaited inaugural Grand Conversation podcast, we are thrilled to talk with Dr. Gillian Steinberg, who co-directs the professional development of SAR High School's faculty and teaches English to our students. We had originally scheduled this podcast to be recorded in person on the day that school shut down back in March. So we are very excited to finally speak with Gillian about her research project and paper on the use of metaphor in discussions of homosexuality. Good afternoon, Gillian, and welcome to The Grand Conversation. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So let's uh, begin by discussing how how you started your research on this particular Topic. What inspired you to start thinking about the use of metaphor in discussions of homosexuality? So um, I was in the group because this is a topic that's been interesting to me for a long time, but I really wasn't sure what I was going to write my paper about. And I was feeling as we continued our reading and our discussions, uh, in some ways, less and less qualified to write a paper on the topic. I don't have smicha. Um, I'm really not an expert in halacha at all. And so much of this conversation ends up being about uh, about halacha and how we make decisions as a community. But what I realized that I am expert in is language and how language works. And I was noticing in the readings that we did how many times various metaphors came up without real interrogation or thought. And that sort of prompted me to think, well, this is actually a contribution I can make to the conversation, even without an expertise in Jewish law. So why is it that analogical language is so important and so fraught when it comes to the Orthodox community and the conversation about homosexuality? So I would actually say that analogical language is important and fraught when it comes to anything. Right? We use analogies all the time for all kinds of purposes, and they're really complicated, and they shape our own thinking, and we use them to try to shape others' thinking. So I don't think that it's unique that we use them in that way when it comes to homosexuality in the Orthodox community. I think that's just um, one of many, many, many places where human beings use analogies all the time. I think it makes sense, really. It's a way for us to try to understand our world. There are things that are unfamiliar to us that are hard to wrap our heads around. And analogy is a way to bring the unfamiliar closer, to say, oh, I actually do understand what that means or what that's like. Um, and we hear it all the time. We hear it in discussions of other religions, of race, of any experience that's not our own experience. Um, and so it's only natural, I think, that that would happen um, in a discussion of sexuality as well, to say, what could this be like? I don't know because I've never experienced um, homosexual desire myself, for instance. So what might that be like? And so we sort of search around to try to find what that might be like so that we can try to understand. And then I think, secondly, we use those kinds of analogies to try to explain our own thinking to others. So 
it's really important because it actually does shape the way we think about the world and the way we think about other human beings and their experiences. And it's fraught because it's so easy to get it wrong. Um, again, not just in terms of sexuality, but in terms of understanding the experience of anyone else. In a very superficial way, you can say and really mean like you have to walk in someone else's shoes, but how do we get in those shoes? Uh, analogy is one way to try, but it's not perfect. So turning to the paper itself, what are some of the metaphors or analogies that are common that you confronted in your research? And what are the what are some of the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the more damaging ones? Uh, and what are some of the metaphors that you prefer or that you've settled on as kind of the best metaphor for this? So I'm still really working through this and thinking about it. This was just a foray into the topic. And I think there's so much more work to be done here. So I don't know that I can say I've settled on a best one. I can tell you what I liked based on the research I did. But there really is so much more room for this. Um, for this conversation to continue. Um, what I realized, this paper's gone through many, many iterations, but when I started working on it, I just had a list of analogies and I was working through them. And what I realized as I was trying to categorize them to give them some more logic was that we really had to break them down into two major categories. One uses analogies that suggest or imply that homosexuality is um, a, a sort of delineated behavior. And the other category is one that suggests that homosexuality is a kind of innate characteristic of a person. I think. Can you give us examples of each of those? Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, um, okay. So an analogy for a behavior would, the most common one is kashrut, right? That's a behavior that, that we engage in. We, we may see it as a kind of quality of ourselves. Like I am a person who keeps kosher, but really it's just a moment to moment act that we're engaging in, right? When we eat something, we make choices. This I'm going to eat and that I'm not going to eat, right? So when people use kashrut as an analogy, think that that's as an analogy for homosexuality, that's implied that then homosexuality is a like, Will I be attracted to this person or to that person? Will I choose this person as my partner or that person as my partner? I think kashrut as an analogy implies that there's a level of choice involved, right? Even if you see it as really integral to your identity, right? It, I, I don't think anyone, I really don't think there's any like neurologist, psychologist, even theologian who would say like you're born with a sense of kashrut, right? Like that that's just a part of you. So, um, so we think that those analogies, for me, are a little bit problematic in our contemporary understanding of homosexuality as a larger part of oneself than just a moment-to-moment -moment or day-to-day -day choice that people make. Now, look, this is complicated. There may be individuals who say, that actually is how I think about my own sexuality. But I'm saying writ large in our society, for the most part, people see themselves as having a kind of innate sexual identity. This is relatively new. We haven't always had that sense. It's one of the things I learned in the readings that we did from Ahun Siach is how much this has changed over the decades and centuries. Um, but now I think many of us accept that that this is a part of people. And so kashrut analogies or um, observance of Shabbat analogies really don't account for that. And the other kind of analogy then is an innate identity um, analogy. And those are a little bit harder to find, but we do have categories of people in Judaism. And so the one that I like best is, um, is the category of, of deafness of the Cheresh. I think that that's actually the most helpful. And there are a lot of ways in which people find that 
problematic. We can talk about those a little bit. But for me, saying here's a quality with which someone was born. It's not a flaw. It's not a fault, right? It's not a deviance. It just happens to be the way that someone was born. Okay, what are we as a Jewish community going to do about that? That feels to me like a more apt, although far from perfect, analogy. So let's explore together a little bit what are some of the the flaws in that particular analogy, which which you you've identified as as a better uh, amongst uh, you know choices that perhaps are not as are not as good. So what are some of the the pushback that you've experienced in sharing this as a kind of apt metaphor? And how do you respond to some of those critiques? So I'm not sure I've received so much pushback. Part of what I tried to do with the paper was actually explore the flaws in each analogy myself. Um, It's not that I put it out there as perfect and other people said, hey, wait a minute. It's like, if we're going to be honest with ourselves about this and really engage in a genuine intellectual discourse, we have to face ourselves the ways in in which these analogies work and don't work. So I would say even though I find the Kashrut analogy very insensitive in a way to the lived experience of homosexuality, um, there are things about it that are true, like that work, right? For example, it's just very hard for people to say, uh, here's how I see a Jewish life looking, right? And include homosexuality in that. it's, It's just a different way of thinking. And so in that way, the Kashrut analogy, I think, makes sense, or the Shomer Shabbat analogy, because it's someone looking at a Jewish life and saying, this is what I envision when I see a Jewish life. Um, and historically, that really has been the case. So I'm sensitive to that. And the same thing, I think, with deafness. I can't just say, this is a more thoughtful, nuanced analogy, and therefore, let's sort of brush aside the ways in which it doesn't work. Um, so the main ways, I think, in which it doesn't work, from a halachic perspective, the most important is the the um, prohibitions against the inclusion of the deaf person in halachic life, um, counting in a minion, having a halachic marriage, serving as a witness, um, those are derabanan prohibitions, right? And the prohibition against homosexual, not homosexuality, because we don't have a prohibition against that, but against um, male homosexual intercourse, um, that's Doraita. And that is a really significant distinction that we can't just brush away. Now, I think that there are ways, and my paper details this, ways in which we actually often bring in additional Durabanon prohibitions to talk about homosexuality. So we don't just stick with a strictly do right to view. And once we do that, we muddle the issue a little bit and say, okay, well, then maybe there is some sort of room for thinking about Durabanon prohibitions as analogies here. Um, but you know, at the at the most basic level, everything about deaf, the the deaf community and deaf individuals comes from the rabbis, right? And so I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, that's not the only problem. And the other problem, sort of on the other side, is that people um, don't like to think about homosexuality as a disability. And so there's something uncomfortable about saying, wait a minute, deafness as an analogy, why would you want to say that homosexuality is a kind of physical disability? That, I think, has an easier answer, which is it's a misunderstanding of deafness, at least as the deaf community themselves um, articulates it. Um, the, the deaf community often uses the phrase uh, difference, not a deficit. 
Um, and I think it's really important that we acknowledge how people in the deaf community think of themselves. So if those of us in the hearing community say, oh, you have something wrong with you, get a cochlear implant and fix it, that's um, a pretty significant misunderstanding of how deaf people see themselves, which is not as merely lacking hearing, right? Uh, which they would see as, as quite offensive, but as being part of a culture and a community that has rich language and theater traditions and their own education and all kinds of things that are really important culturally. Um, and so we can't just dismiss that by saying, like, get your problem fixed. The analogy for that, for homosexuality, of course, would be something like uh, reparative therapy, which, aside from not working, is incredibly dangerous, sometimes fatally so. Um, and now, thank God, um, illegal in most places in America. So, um, you know, so I think we couldn't think of it that way. And if we start to say, well, wait, deafness isn't seen by the deaf community as a disability. Therefore, homosexuality doesn't need to be seen by um, that community or by people outside as a disability. Then we can sort of work out that problem. If we turn to the other, some of the other examples and the other metaphors, I, I want to just clarify, there are some people who use those metaphors in a way in which they think they are being supportive and embracing of the homosexual yeah. community. So That's if right. if we give someone who's not Shomer Shabbat an aliyah, then we should be willing to give someone who identifies as a homosexual an aliyah. What would you, how would you respond to someone who says, no, the metaphors we're using are actually in service of embracing and accepting homosexuals in orthodoxy? Right. So it, those, those are meant to include, but I think that, again, logically, they're very problematic. So for the moment, rather than the Shomer Shabbat one, let's say, um, the tax fraud. Okay. So you often hear, wait a minute, you won't let someone have an aliyah who's, who's gay, but you let this guy who went to prison for tax fraud, like have, have an aliyah, right? Those are equally serious penalties, whatever. And they're trying to point out hypocrisy. So these hypocrisy analogies, I think, unintentionally actually undermine the cause that the arguer is trying to put forward um, by essentially saying that homosexuality is like tax fraud, which they don't really mean to say. That is, they're saying it's sinful. And even though it's sinful, we should include the person in the community because we include other people who sin in the community. Is that really the argument that someone who supports the inclusion of homosexuals wants to make, that it's a sinful act? Usually they don't. Um, I would say people who use the hypocrisy of argument basically never intend that, but that's what's implied by that analogy. And so, in fact, if you take that analogy to its logical extreme, you wouldn't argue that the homosexual should have an aliyah, but that the tax fraud shouldn't. Um, to me, that would be the logical outcome there. Like, if we're going to say, this is a sin and that's a sin, let's exclude people who sin, then, I mean, maybe you're accomplishing something. You're allowing people to be like as a community, less Consistent, hypocritical. Right. right, exactly. Consistent. But is that really what we're going for? Um, usually the people who use those analogies haven't thought through all the way what the logical extension of that would be. Let's think through this analogy all the way through. Mm -hmm. And I guess question ask the question, you you stated from the, at the beginning of the podcast that you realized you're not a halachic expert. You don't have smicha. But this is obviously something that you've been thinking about for a long time. And yes. given given kind of your own personal journey uh, towards Orthodox Judaism is obviously mm -hmm. something that animates you quite a bit. So yeah. 
I'd love for you to share a little bit about that particular journey and what you see the goal of this paper in terms of changing the discourse. Uh, or is there a larger goal that that you'd love to see happen, but it's not your uh, it's not in your hands to achieve? So that last part, the answer is yes. Um, I think that comes from a sense of my values. Um, well outside of the scope of this paper. Um, my involvement in synagogue life, as you said, my journey to orthodoxy, but um, but I definitely don't feel that that kind of change can be made by, by people who aren't halachic decisors, leaders in the community in that way. And I think that's part of accepting orthodoxy, right? I can't just say, here's how it feels like it should be to me, so that's what I'm going to say is right. Um, that's not part being part of the system. And that's very frustrating. And I think it's frustrating for people with all kinds of complaints about the system, about agunot, about like there are plenty of reasons to complain about the system. And also, I think, very compelling reasons not to just say, so we're going to break away or so we're going to make our own rules. Um, and so to me, yes, I would absolutely love to see um, full inclusion in the community and I don't think I'm in a position to make that happen. Um, I don't think I'm knowledgeable enough. Um, but I would like that. I hope that people figure it out. I do think that thinking about analogies can be one very small step towards that because it can sensitize us to the ways in which we might be too flip or, um, or we might trivialize the issue. And so that I think I can legitimately speak to because I, I do, I think, understand how language works and how we use it. Um, my goal for this, though, is not a world-changing goal, even if personally that's a goal of mine, right? I would love to see the world change in this particular way. My goal for this paper is to say, let's just think about this a little harder. Let's make sure we're being sensitive in the language we use. Let's not uh, undermine values of ours in the service of preser preserving other values, right? Like, let's not use language in ways that aren't precise. If we know anything from, from our Jewish learning, it's how important every single word, every letter, every vowel is, right? And we can't just throw words around as though they don't mean things. So that feels very important to me and also very doable. Um, we can all, as a community, wherever we fall out on this issue, be more sensitive in how we use language. It can change the day-to-day -day experience, I think, of people who do feel excluded from the community to at least be treated with that sensitivity. But I think more importantly, it's intellectually authentic. That feels very important. Um, so I, you also wanted me to talk about <laughs> like being Valshuva? No, right? I, I, I'm just curious <laughs> how much of that piece of your own personal story informs this research project and the paper. Uh, yeah, who the heck knows? I mean, I, I think I'd need to lie down on a couch for that one. Like, I, it's impossible to know how your own personal story informs. Like, so I don't know that I can, I can sort of tease that out. I guess at some earlier point in my life, I would have been more radical about this and said, um, like, orthodoxy is too closed and it's ridiculous and you should just obviously do the right thing or something like that. Um, but now in the place that I'm in, you know, religiously now, I think, that would have seemed very naive. That, that would seem now, like looking back, like a very naive kind of answer. And um, and discounting all of the value that orthodoxy has, which I think is considerable. 
Um, I think that there's, there's room in orthodoxy, which we sometimes deny, for change to occur. We can look in our own history and see that that has happened. It has happened, right? Even if we kind of pride ourselves on saying that it hasn't. It's not fully true. Well, but certainly also, on, on the on the death community yes, issue, that's true. Exactly. And some of the other analogies I use in the paper also, which we can talk about. But but to say we just throw out anything that doesn't feel comfortable to us in the moment is losing all of the value of the tradition and sort of privileging ourselves too much, I think. We have to be more circumspect than that. Now, the problem is we can't be circumspect to the extent that we're like harming people's lives. So what can we do in the moment to make sure that people aren't being harmed by our circumspection without just throwing out everything and saying, okay, here's what it is now because this feels right to us now. It's not easy, right? And that's, I think that's like, for me, the really meaningful balance of modern orthodoxy of holding on to tradition. But you also have to recognize that there's little moments for things to change. And I think back to the deafness analogy, as you said, we're proud of ourselves as a community that we include people with various like physical disabilities, that we have yachad, right? But that would have been unheard of not really that long ago, right? And and we would have said, no, we can't include people like this in our community. To give someone from yachad a, an aliyah, to have a deaf person being involved in halachic marriage, like we, that would have seemed just ludicrous and antithetical to Judaism. And we see now that we actually use those moments as points of pride for ourselves. Look how ethical we are. Look how inclusive we are. If we can recognize that those things have changed, I think that gives us hope for change, at least. Um, but we still have to figure out how, because it's not the same, right? That Like, I can throw that analogy out and say, look, things have changed. But then we have to dig down and say, wait a minute, are those really the same? And do you think language was part of the change that happened in these other cases? Meaning- Undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean... There's there's no way that it couldn't be, right? Because how we think about concepts is always framed through language. Um, I mean, the deafness example, especially maybe on a more like a deeper level than you even meant, which is a lot of that had to do with could a deaf person speak? So right. like literally about language. But, but also, how did we talk about that, right? When people first were writing true vote saying, well, maybe, maybe there's room. Maybe we see now because of deaf education that actually we were wrong to categorize the deaf person with the shota and with the katan. Like, that's all about language. That's all about how we frame questions that we ask ourselves and the issues. Um, and even those were done with such sensitivity to saying, but Chazal told us, so we have to think very carefully. Um, and that's also why I think you can't use language as too blunt an instrument. It's so subtle. Um, And acknowledging that subtlety is really the only way, I think, to be sufficiently sensitive to it. So you mentioned this before, and I want to uh, explore it a little further with you, even though this isn't what your paper is about, but it's what's going on today. And that is, can we take some of these lessons about language and about analogy and apply them to the Orthodox community and where we're at? in terms of racism and dealing with some of those issues. Because what I've, been, what I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks in anticipation of this conversation is where's the role of language and metaphor and analogy uh, when it comes to racism in the Orthodox community and, and talking about it? Yeah, it's such a great question. And you see, it comes up constantly because 
we we like, I think, as a community, and like, again, is not a great word for this, but like, we like as a community to, um, to say, oh, but we're persecuted too, right? And so often conversations about race turn back to conversations about anti-Semitism in the Jewish community, say, we understand what this is like because we have experienced this also. Um, and there's a degree to which that's true and a degree to which that's not true. And I think that what we have to do in order to be really sensitive is separate those and sometimes say, maybe analogy in this case just isn't going to cut it. Like maybe we actually just need to listen to someone else's experience and not compare it to our own. And this is not a new conversation for me because I teach a lot of African-American literature and my students very, very often want to say, but the Holocaust. Hmm. So when we, we read Beloved, right, Toni Morrison's great novel about slavery, and students talk about the hardships of slavery, someone always inevitably says, but the Holocaust, right? Um, not as a way to, like, the students are super sensitive. It's not as a way to undermine what Morrison's saying, but to try to take something that feels so hard to wrap your head around and bring it closer, right? We understand the Holocaust, so let's think about it in those terms. And so an exercise I often do in class is try to separate that out. How is slavery different from the Holocaust? And often kids will start with, well, um, ours was a genocide, mm. right? Like there's a kind of like, almost like, um, there's a term for this. I can't remember. Well, it's saying it's like that comparative the comparative trauma or right, something, it's something like that. You can't compare anything to the Holocaust. Slavery right. is not right, as right. bad as genocide. Exactly. So there's that. Um, and then someone else, like there's, there's always kids who sort of come down on both sides of this, right? Someone else will say, but slavery lasted for hundreds of years, right? But, but like, and you can keep going back and forth. You could just make a little chart if you want to, right? There's a point where you have to stop and say, how helpful is this? How useful is this? Could we just say, Jews have been treated badly and we have had bad experiences and full stop, totally separately, Black people have been treated really badly, and black people have had bad experiences, right? And they're different, right? And we don't need to pair them. Maybe we can say we should be sensitive to other people's bad experiences because we have had bad experiences. But that might be the extent of the analogy that's possible here, right? And if we start to go, well, but there's still anti-Semitism and the same white supremacists who don't like black people, don't like Jews. I think what ends up happening is we turn everything back to ourselves and we can't really fully open our experience to what someone else is, is going through because it is always about us and our own persecution. Um, there's also really complex meldings of this so that if Jews want to say Black Lives Matter with or without a hashtag, right, which is complicated, um, then there's like, oh, but does that organization dislike Israel or does it dislike Jews, right? And so what we have is this kind of like rich intertextuality of how we think about ourselves and how we think about others and how others think about us that would shape the way we think about them. And so it kind of goes round and round in circles. For me, it's most helpful to say, this isn't about us, right? And, and sometimes you just have to say that. The question about homosexual Jews is different to me in the sense that it is about us. Homosexual Jews are us, 
right? So we have to hear that experience too, but then say, wait, what are we doing to ourselves when we exclude them? Which is quite different from the racial conversation, except, of course, to acknowledge that there are Jews of color who are in very, very complicated positions right now and often, unfortunately, excluded from the conversation. Who are um, also us and part of... Ex- that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. And and too often left out of that discussion. Um but when I say that we're turning it back to us, I think I mean most often um, to the sort of typical, whatever, it's stereotypical, I don't know, a vision of the Eastern European Ashkenazic, right, survive the Holocaust kind of Jewish model, which is obviously not true, again, of the like lived Jewish experience. Um, so maybe what would be helpful actually is to say, if we're excluding Jews of color from these conversations, what are we doing to us? But we also have to listen to people who are um, of color and not Jewish, right, which is the majority in this case. Um, I think we can take conversations about Jewish homosexuals and maybe apply them to how other homosexuals are treated outside of the Jewish context. But in that case, most of the problem is with the Jewish context because that's where the exclusion applies. So again, I think pulling these things apart and and being willing to take the time to say where does this work as a comparison where doesn't where doesn't it and where do we have to stop the comparing and just open our ears and our hearts um, that can be helpful too everything can't be analogized when we try to do it we make a mistake great that's that's a very helpful distinction to make between those two conversations returning to the homosexuality conversation I'm curious if in sharing the paper with alumni and with Macomb parents and with others, um, what some of the reactions have been. You said you didn't have so much pushback. Mm-hmm. Have uh, I know some have suggested alternative analogies, which might yeah. be preferred. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the other reactions you've you've mm-hmm. heard to the paper? It's all been really positive. I would guess that the Macomb parents were mostly like pretty supportive because I grade their kids. Um, so... <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but no, that, like it's a great group and they were really open to hearing this. And I think like that's a group of people also who just appreciate careful thinking about things. And that's really what I'm encouraging here is careful thinking. So I don't think I got really any pushback from that group, although a lot of people want me to write about um, Agunot specifically as a comparison, which again, it's like really complicated. <laughs> it's really fraught. I haven't done the research yet to be able to do that. Um Someone suggested to me um, that I should write about the lives of single people, especially like single women in the Jewish community, um, which I thought was so interesting. Like I would never have thought of that as such a difficult category to be in, but it really, really is. And so I think there's some like as people are thinking about this, I encourage people to like write their own, like take one of these analogies and sort of explore it and just pull it apart and see what's in there, right? How is it going to help us? How is it going to, like, I, I think some of the people who want me to write about Agunot, it's because they actually want to solve the Agunot problem, right? So can we use this to go to that? I would say I prefer right now something like um, the Cheresh because it's already a little bit s- solved in our community, right? Taking two intractable problems and using them up against each other is going to be pretty tough. So what we what we want, if we want to advance this analogy, this homosexual analogy, is, um, or maybe not the analogy, but the issue is to use analogies that have already made some progress, 
I think left-handedness is another one that's come up. Yes, that's a great one. So there's a great article on left-handedness. Rabbi Ethan Tucker has already done this one to terrific um, ends. I think it's really worth reading. I didn't end up taking that on because I didn't – I this is what I argued like when I was talking to them – to the Mahonziach group about it. I said that I didn't think that left-handedness had so much stigma in society today. And then a couple left-handed people told me that it does. So <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but I also, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to go there because um, Rabbi Tucker did it so well. And I think there's room for lots of these kinds of papers. They don't all have to come from me. Like, I encourage everyone to take this idea and run with it. Um, so, so I guess I would say that. And then with the alumni... It's just interesting. Like, kids are so liberal. Um, maybe it's just New York, but, like, around this issue, the younger generation is just so open. And they're really looking for a solution. And so they pushed me um, to say I wasn't going far enough, right? And I was, like, so careful about not going too far because I know where my personal um, feelings about this lie. And I think it's really important in the scholarship to not – to try as much as possible, which is not fully possible, to right, withhold bias, right? And they were like, no, be biased. Like, tell us what's really right and just- Advocate. Burn down the walls kind of thing. And I'm like, that's not where I am, maybe because I'm old now. Um, but but I, that was what I got from, like, a lot of the kids really appreciated it, the, the, the alum. But a few of them were like, this isn't enough. Um, which is the opposite of what I'd worried about, in part because I sit with a Mahon Siach group of, you know, people approximately my age who have the same concerns about the community pushing back and about sort of the vision of SAR. Are we too left and are we too open and all of that kind of stuff? Um, so it was interesting to hear the younger, they weren't all alumni at that group. It was also like friends of alums, but saying, um, we need to go so much faster. We need to do so much more. And again, there are many, many ways in which I agree with that. Um, I think you can go so fast that you leave a lot of people behind, which doesn't ultimately do us so much good. But also, um, I think I'm not personally the person who can do that. I can advocate and I can definitely be an ally and I can help in the ways in which I'm expert, um, but not beyond that. I think actually it would be more hurtful than helpful if I tried. I want to take the last couple of min- minutes, Gillian. This has been really great to talk a little bit about your next project that you've been working on uh, cool. with Machon Siach mm-hmm. and share with us a little bit about the work you're doing around spirituality, where that stands, kind of how that group came to be and what the next mm-hmm. steps are there. Great. So um, Lisa Schlaff and I are co-leading a spirituality cohort for Machon Siach right now. It's really fun and interesting. Um, I brought the idea up to her. Actually, I think I brought the idea up to Rabbi Harkstark because I've been leading a really interesting experimental tefillah this year. Unfortunately, it was like sort of messed up by everything that was messed up this year. Like it, it was, it was part of the casualty of that. Um, but, um, but it's experimental for only women who really are not moved by davening. Like they go, they'll do their thing, but they're not into it. And I have been in a standard davening um, for my first four years at SAR. And I just saw these girls feeling so disillusioned and not not getting from davening what I get from davening. And I wanted to have a group with them. So I said, wouldn't this be like a cool thing to think about? Like where where's their spirituality lie if it's not in tefillah? 
And so I brought that up to Rabbi Harkstark, and it turned out that right around the same time, um, Mishlaf had also brought up a similar idea, a, a little broader, not just about tefillah, but about spirituality generally. So we joined on that. And so we've been working all year, reading a lot of interesting things about um, adolescent spiritual development and about tefillah and about uh, what it means to be a sort of spiritual person, to feel connected, how we bring that into the high school classroom. Um, so it's totally different from what I worked on in the last group, but also really, really interesting and I think has a lot of practical implication for a school like ours, but also for every day school that's, you know, that's seeing that kids can the say the right things and learn the right things, but that feeling piece is um, is so complicated and hard to know how to teach and how to instill. So that's what we're thinking about. Well, we're looking forward to having you back on the Grand Conversation podcast Thanks. to discuss the products of that wonderful group. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Gillian Steinberg and encourage everyone to check out the paper uh, online on the Machon Siach website and the Siach Talk, our TED Talk-style talks uh, that Dr. Steinberg did on this topic. I want to thank Rabbi Bloom for coordinating and producing. And until next time, this was the Grand Conversation Podcast. Have a good day.